You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Here's Nate. Now, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, it's important to remember that there were two major sections of his letter that we call 1 Corinthians. The first portion of the letter, chapter 1 through 6, is Paul's attempt to address the problems that he'd heard about through a report brought to him from members of a woman named Chloe's household while he was in Ephesus about the Corinthian church. So he talked to them in those first six chapters about sexual immorality. He talked to them about lawsuits that they had gotten in one against another. And he talked to them about divisions religiously that they had, connecting themselves to one teacher or doctrine or another in juxtaposition to other teachers and doctrines. And he even talked to them about one egregious form of immorality that had to be corrected quite publicly in the church there in Corinth. The second half of the book of 1 Corinthians deals with Paul's answers to questions that they had written to him about. And in chapter 8, he had begun to answer a question that they had asked about the eating of meat that is sacrificed to idols. Now, that doesn't seem like a pressing issue to the modern mind quite often, but Paul took his time in answering this question. He dealt with it in chapter 8 by announcing that the idol was nothing and the meat was nothing, and so a believer is free but should not stumble another believer or stumble a non-believer from coming to Christ. Uh, But he talked in chapter 9 about the maturity that would lead a believer to perhaps lay down their rights to eat or drink or do various things that are considered gray areas in the body of Christ. But he continues his thought about this on into chapter 10 and even into chapter 11. Really, he wanted these Corinthians to be able to succeed in their walks with the Lord. He had concluded chapter 9 by saying that he was running his race and that he was running his race in a way in which he could win the race that was set before him. He did not want to be disqualified, is what Paul said. That's actually the final word of chapter 9. Lest after preaching to others, he said, I myself should be disqualified. Disqualification was Paul's worry, so he ran his race well. Now, in chapter 10, Paul is going to set his mind upon a group of people, biblically, who, although they were saved, although they were part of God's program here on earth, They did not receive everything that God had for them. They did not lose their salvation, 
but they did become disqualified from the the plan of God. They didn't receive everything that the Lord had for them. And of course, Paul is going to talk about the generation who came out of Egypt. Definitely part of God's plan, God's program here on earth, but they did not receive everything the Lord had for them because the Lord wanted to bring them into the promised land. But through their unbelief and their carnality, they were unable to experience the full blessing of God upon their lives. And so Paul's deepest heart here for the Corinthians is that they would experience everything that the Lord has for them. So he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, as I mentioned, Paul has already at this point told them of the disciplined run, the disciplined life, and his worry here is that they would be disqualified as they ran their race. He did not want them to think, however, that that disqualification was an unlikely event. Instead, he wanted them to remember their fathers spiritually. Now, as a side note, it is interesting to consider that as Paul writes to a primarily Gentile church in Corinth, he goes out of his way to consider out loud or in writing the ancient Israelites as the fathers of this Corinthian church. You see, in Paul's view of God's people, although he could see various groups, and it certainly as you read Romans 9 and 10 and 11, it is clear that Paul felt that the primarily or predominantly Gentile church was a different group than the Israelite people of God. However, in Paul's mind, we are also, even though there is a different thing that God is doing amongst each one of those groups, we are also connected. We are also one, justified by faith together, sanctified by grace and the Spirit of God together. And so Paul looks at these Old Testament believers and calls them for the Gentile church our fathers. As he said in Galatians chapter 3 verse 29, he said if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My simple encouragement and we're going to see Paul back this up in this passage is that you would make friends with the Old Testament saints that you would know their stories, that you would know their scriptures, that you would read the word of God. Remember that the early church, which many people consider the most vibrant and alive church, did not for many years even have a New Testament. Now, it took a while for the New Testament to be formed, to be written, and to be widely accepted and circulated throughout the early church. No, for them, their scriptures were the Old Testament. Now, what Paul wants them to remember about their fathers is are five 
specific things. Five blessings that Israel experienced, and by extension, these are blessings that the church experiences today. Uh, number one, they were under the cloud, verse one. In other words, they were under the glorious presence of God. Now, just to refresh your memory, in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were brought out of their captivity in Egypt, God led them with, at night, a pillar of fire, and by day, that pillar became a cloud. In fact, some have suggested that it was cool for the day, shade for the day, and heat for the night. And so there probably is something here about the divine guidance of God, but there is also just something about the supernatural presence of God. They were under the cloud. God's glory was manifested right there in their midst. They had God. They were possessed by and possessed God. We as believers, we have God. The blood of Jesus Christ has won a relationship with God for us. His guidance is so beautiful, but it is not primary. It is to flow out of relationship with him. His presence is better than his guidance. In fact, his guidance flows from his presence, but what we should want is his presence. Number two, in verse one, they passed through the sea. This means that they were brought through the Red Sea experience after all of the plagues in Egypt. They were brought through the Red Sea. This was God's line of demarcation. This was his way of granting victory to the Israelites over their previous and long-standing enemy. It was a miraculous deliverance. It was salvation. And this is what Jesus Christ has won for you and has won for me. His miraculous deliverance. He has saved, Matthew 1, 21, his people from their sins. And in Galatians 1, verse 4, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Number three, what they had in verse 2 is that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, they received an identification, you know, so close, so thick, so strong that you would call it baptism. They were immersed into a leader, and, and that leader's name was Moses. And Moses gave them the law, Moses taught them, Moses instructed them, Moses showed them the way, and he showed them the way to sanctification. Now, the third benefit here that the people of Israel had beyond the presence of God and the deliverance of God is that they had unification with a leader. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the same. John wrote and said that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we have one better than Moses. Uh, he did not just bring the law. He fulfilled the law and brought grace and truth. Number four, they, verse three, all ate the same spiritual food. Now, this is interesting because what they ate in the wilderness 
was manna. In verse 4, he also says that they all drank the same spiritual drink. And what they drank in the wilderness was water that God had supernaturally provided at times through the rock or through turning the bitter water sweet. God gave them manna. It was physical. It was real. And he gave them water. It was physical and it was real. But here, Paul calls it spiritual food and spiritual drink. You see, these physical objects for the people of Israel were a means of grace to them as a people. The fourth benefit that we see here is that they were able to eat spiritual food. Now, you and I, we don't have as much as they did a physical meal that is actually spiritual food. We we do have it. I shouldn't state that we don't. We have communion. We have the bread and the cup. And Paul is going to allude to that in a moment. But we also have true spiritual food. We have the Lord. We have his word. And like the manna that had to be consumed daily, without any leftovers, just enough for that day, so you and I, we should have a practice in our lives of daily going out to eat and to drink of what the Lord wants to give to us spiritually. So often we neglect that relationship with the Lord. We neglect that food. We neglect that meal that God has for us. Now, the fifth blessing, it says, they drank, verse 4, the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, at the beginning of their journey, and at the end of their journey, were these two moments where water came out of the rock for the people of Israel. And what Paul announces is that Christ was that rock. That he was with them the whole time. This is a clear statement of the pre-existence of Christ. In fact, in the Old Testament, the divine name, Rock, is often used. And here, Paul applies it to Jesus. Now, it's interesting because when you look at Moses' relationship with the rock, it was part of the reason that he was kept out of the land of promise. You see, the first time at the rock, the Lord told him to strike it. The second time at the rock in Kadesh, rather than Horeb, the Lord told him to speak to the rock, but Moses was angry, so he struck the rock. You see, Jesus only had to be struck once. And so when Moses struck the rock twice, God refused to allow Moses into the land. Finally, their last benefit here, what we see, is that they were able to drink the spiritual drink, living water. And that's, of course, what the Lord gives to us, living water by which we never thirst again. So great blessings, really great blessings. You and I have great blessings as well in Christ, in the church, but they had great blessings. So Paul goes on to say, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Uh, you remember the story, perhaps, that Joshua and Caleb and ten other spies were sent in by Moses to view, view the promised land and bring back a report. And when they did, Joshua and Caleb reported that 
Though there were giants in the land, the land was fruitful, a land flowing with milk and honey, and that God would give them the victory. But the ten spies swayed the people of God to disbelieve God and to believe that victory could not be theirs. Though they had experienced all of the plagues in Egypt, the Red Sea deliverance, so they had experienced and seen that God was on their side, they could not believe that God would give them the victory. And so through their disbelief, God judged them and made the determination that they were disqualified, just like Paul had worried about. He did not want to be disqualified. That generation was They were saved under the Passover. They were separated under God through the Red Sea, and they were supposed to grow and mature, but they did not. They had a lack of faith, and so they were kept out of the promised land. Even Moses was kept out of that promised land. This should have served as a dire warning to the Corinthians and serves as a dire warning to us. We want to have everything that God has for us. Now, Paul goes on to say, verse 6, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might, might not desire evil as they did. We saw five great benefits. Now we're going to see five great failings that caused them to be disqualified from the race. One of the first failings that we see is that they desired evil. They desired evil. There was this craving within them. This is one of the first steps in disqualification, a desire for evil. This is why Proverbs 4, verse 23 is so important. Above all else, the NIV says, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. There's got to be a protection of your heart, a cultivation of your heart, a guarding of your heart, making sure that it is a place that is safe, that is in love, that is devoted to God, and that nothing creeps into the heart that would lead to a desire for evil that would lead to disqualification. Do not, verse 7, he goes on to say, be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, and this is from Exodus chapter 32, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Not only did they desire evil, but they also began to create a new religion. They engaged in idolatry. The Corinthian application was obvious. Some in Corinth did not just want to eat the meat that had been offered to idols, but they wanted to engage a little bit in that idolatry, in that culture, in that way of doing things. And the people of Israel had done a similar thing. When Moses went to the mountain to Mount Sinai to seek the Lord, the people came to Moses and said, make us a God, you know, make a God for us, the one that delivered us. The Egyptians had their beetles and their frogs and their cats and their crocodiles and their bats and their bull-shaped gods that they owned, that they possessed, that they told what to do and that they sought. And Maybe those gods weren't for us because They were for the Egyptians, but now we're gone from the Egyptians. Give us a God, a God we can own, that we can fashion, that we can make in the image that we like. And so Aaron mixed the gold that they gave and made a calf and said, tomorrow's a feast to the Lord. They thought they could possess their own God. You see, this is what happens. 
when a person begins to be disqualified. They begin to make God in the image that they want him to be in. They begin to create their own religion. Idolatry puts the worshiper in the driver's seat. It has a form of godliness, but you get to make the rules. You are on the throne, but God is the only one that belongs on the throne. God is transcendent. He is above us. <laughs> but not only that, it's, he says in verse 8, he says, We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now here he's alluding to the Balak and Balaam episode. I'll spare you the details of it. But in Numbers 25, it concluded with 23,000 of the Israelite people dying because they had engaged in sexual immorality with the Moabite people. This is another step in disqualification. You begin to engage not just in sexual immorality, but in a completely different ethic for life. And then he says in verse 9, but we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This alludes to the episode where at Mount Hor, they went around the land of Edom and on their journey, they became impatient and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. And when they did that, snakes came out and began to bite them. And the only way to be healed was by coming out of their tent and looking at a bronze serpent that Moses had built by the direction of God for that occasion. It's interesting, Jesus actually used that story as imagery for the cross in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. That just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, this is another step of disqualification. You begin to speak against God. Your soul is discouraged. You blame God. And many Corinthians thought that they knew better than God. Nor grumble, verse 10, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This was the ultimate and final straw for Israel. It alludes to the time when the spies came back in Numbers 14 and they did not believe God. They gave up on God entirely. The Corinthians needed to believe in God. We must believe in God. Many Corinthians had complained against Paul and in effect were complaining against the Lord who had sent Paul. Now these things, verse 11, happened to them as an example. And they were written down for our own instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. We are in the final stage. Paul says, upon us, the end of the ages has come. But all these things in the Old Testament, they were given to us as an example. They were written down for our instruction to train us. Therefore, verse 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful Verse 13, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Everyone is vulnerable to temptation, Paul announces. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is an overconfidence that can come upon us. Pride comes before destruction, Proverbs 16, 18, and a haughty spirit before a fall. We should not assume that we are immune from temptation. 
Number two, not only is everyone vulnerable to temptation, but every temptation that exists is common. That's what he says in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Or to put it this way, in the New Living Translation, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. You are not the special circumstance or the impossible case or the weirdo in the room. No, all temptation is common to mankind. Number three, Every temptation is escapable because he announces in verse 13 that with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. God provides your escape from temptation. Now, it isn't always taken. The Israelites didn't take it. The Corinthians didn't take it. But we must look for that way out. Sometimes that way out is the simple truth. Jesus used the truth to evade temptation. Sometimes it's just God himself. But there is always an opportunity to come out of temptation. Therefore, my beloved, he says, verse 14, flee from idolatry. Now, this is fascinating because, you know, Paul has already announced that an idol is nothing, the meat is nothing. But here he confesses, that the house of idols was the Corinthian danger zone. It was a place of danger for the Corinthian believers. It was a house of temptation. It was a place of compromise. And Paul exhorts them to actually take the way of escape provided to them. Flee the house of temptation. Flee the place of compromise. The, the word that Paul uses is flee, flight, run. Don't toy, but escape. I speak, verse 15, as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Here he's saying quite a few things about communion in the Christian church. But the big point that he's trying to make is, look, when we eat that meal, aren't we connected to each other? Aren't we connected to the Lord? Isn't there a special connection? So when you go into the idol's temple, be careful of that special connection. Consider verse 18, the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? You know, he wanted them to consider Israel, not the Old Testament group of the people that were around during Paul's day. The sacrifices were still happening in Jerusalem. They were participating with God in the altar. God having his peace, the worshiper having theirs. Paul's point was that those spiritual dinners have a spiritual meaning. So watch out for the idol dinners. What do I imply then? Verse 19. The food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul had two clarifications. Number one, the food offered to idols, it's nothing. He had said in chapter 8, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're not worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Clarification number two, the idol isn't anything either. He said, I know that an idol has no real existence. Chapter 8, verse 4, there is no God but one. So he clarifies that. But his warning is, look, these people, when they engage in it, they are having koinonia, they are having fellowship, not with the idol and not with the food, but with the demonic realm that is behind all of that. 
You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You know, there's a, a sense here that Paul is saying we should renounce all other worship. We should drink only the cup of the Lord. We should not attempt to add anything to Jesus Christ and his gospel. The Lord is jealous. We should not provoke him to jealousy. All things are lawful, verse 23, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Again, this is what the Corinthians kept saying. All things are lawful. We can do anything. But Paul, again, reminds them. You've got to ask the question, even if it's lawful, is it helpful? Does it build up? Here, Paul gives us an incredible filter for decision-making. We make decisions constantly about what we will allow or not allow into our lives. And looking back, we've all made decisions we wish we could reverse. Relationships, purchases, education, nutrition, work habits, or church habits. And looking forward, we can assume we'll make more decisions that we'll regret. So here's a filter question. What is the most helpful and edifying thing for me to do at this moment? Too many ask the question, what's lawful? What's permissible? What's legitimate? They want to know if there's a verse or a sermon against it instead of, is this the wisest thing for my life? Rather than asking what is legal, ask what is helpful? What is edifying? Let no one, verse 24, seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So that helps us understand who it is that we're trying to edify others. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising, verse 25, any question on the ground of conscience. For, verse 26, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's a quote from Psalm 24, verse 1. So Paul gives direction. Hey, the meat market, eat whatever is sold there. You know, don't even ask any questions about where the meat came from. So as to not stir up your own conscience or someone else's, else's conscience, just eat it because, well, everything belongs to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Go ahead and eat it. It belongs to God. But verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrifice and don't eat it, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. So if you get invited to someone's house and you're eating a meal, don't ask about that meat either. But if someone says this was previously offered in a sacrifice, then abstain. You might offend that person. You might mislead that person. They might begin to think that it's okay to embrace demonic idolatry and the gospel, but also your own conscience. Now, the New King James Version goes off of a manuscript that adds, again, from Psalm 24, for the earth is the Lord's and, the, and all its fullness, or the fullness thereof. In other words, everything belongs to God, so eat it, it all belongs to God, but also everything belongs to God, so don't eat it. You have plenty other options because God owns it all. I do not mean your conscience, verse 29, but his for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Paul recognized that Christians wouldn't like this. Who wants to think of other people to that degree? Other people's conscience ruling your own life. 
Paul was a man who understood the extreme principles of Christian liberty, yet he gladly laid down his life. So we too should do all for the glory of God. This is our principle. Principled people do not need to know what is legal. They aren't asking how much they can get away with as a Christian. No, instead, here's their mission. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul's goal was very clear. Be wise. Rather than focusing on what is legal, be wise. Number two, do everything for God's glory. And number three, keep the eternal souls of people in mind. You want everyone to be saved. And right here, we simply have Paul fleshing out what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.